0: Hey everybody, how are we doing tonight? Excellent, Uh, I'm Josh and uh, as Brian said, I'm the lead pastor over at Revolution Church and uh, we've been good friends with uh, Jack and Brian for a few years now and we had Jack come and preach for us uh, in November and he asked if I'd come and return the favor over the summertime and so uh, real excited to be here with you guys tonight and um, so I'm gonna pray and then we'll we'll dive right in so let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, just that you are here I thank you that um, no one here tonight is here by accident. I just thank you for the words just of of those songs, especially the last one of just how you are able to redeem all things, that you're able to bring new life out of the mess that some of us find ourselves in. And I pray tonight that as we uh, just open up your word, as we look at this whole idea of what it means to trust in God what it means to trust God, to walk with God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, speak through these words that you inspire to be written in your name. Amen. You know, it's interesting. When I asked uh, Jack what he wanted me to talk about, he he said, you know, I want you to talk about how to trust God. And trust is kind of this interesting, hard thing for some of us. We... Maybe tonight you've walked in and, and you've had people in your life who have broken promises to you. Maybe you grew up in a home where uh, you you had a mom or a dad who always said, you know, I'll be at your recital, I'll be at your game, I'll be at your practice, I'll be at, at this thing that you're doing, and then you look up into the stands, you look out into the auditorium, and you just see an empty seat there. And so for you, trust is this really difficult thing to wrap your, wrap your hands around. And, and we also kind of idealize trust in our culture. We, we sit at weddings and we watch couples and, and it's this beautiful ceremony and everybody is excited and there's great food and everyone gets dressed up and we watch the couple look at each other and they make these vows and they make these promises. But for some of us sitting there, we're sitting next to an empty seat because our spouse didn't keep their promises. And so we look at them and, and, and we think, well, we'll see how that works out for them. We'll see how that goes for them. Or, you know, I hope that they can make that work. And, you know, trust can, trust is this flimsy thing sometimes too. I remember about 10 years ago, I was the student pastor at a church outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And I was beginning to feel as I was 25. We were about to have our first child and I was beginning to feel this pull out of student ministry and wanting to plant a church. And so I went to my boss and I said, Hey, this is what I feel like God's calling me to. Would you pray with me? And, you know, give me some feedback on whether or not you think God might be calling me to this. And so he said, yeah, you know, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. And so I was, I was so excited because here was one of my mentors, somebody who I was working alongside with, who's going to pray with me. A couple months passed I came to him and I said, hey, you know, I'm still praying through this. I'm not sure where God's leading me. And he said, well, you know, I was talking with our lead pastor. And because you're feeling like God might be calling you to this, that means God isn't calling you to be in the job that you have right now. So we're going to let you go. And as I sat there, I was completely dumbfounded. We were um, four months away from having our first child. So it was a perfect time to be unemployed. And as I sat there and I thought, wait a second, I asked, I trusted you. And maybe you've had a relationship like that where you trusted somebody. You shared your heart. You opened yourself up for the very first time. You looked at somebody and said, I I have a really hard time trusting people, but I'm going to trust you. And they stabbed you in the back. And here's what happens when trust gets broken in our lives. We make the people who come later pay for the mistakes of people in our past. So this this pastor that I worked under, this was 10 years ago. When we planted Revolution Church six years ago, there was another pastor who planted with me. And I still, at that point, four years after the fact, couldn't trust another pastor. So I made this pastor that I was planting with, I made him pay for the mistakes of someone else. And so trust becomes hard. Trust becomes difficult. But trust is also the only way forward. Trust is the only way that we move forward in something. And maybe for you, especially as you think about trusting God. Trusting God is, is, for some of us, is even more difficult. Because if you're, in the, if you're in the category where you've had promises broken, you've had relationships that have been broken, you've had people walk out on you. I, I had a woman this morning right after our service came up just in tears and she's just sharing how she just struggles to trust men because of what her father did to her, because of what her husband did to her. And she said, how can I trust God if God is supposed to be a father? And so for many of us, trusting God is difficult. But if if you're taking notes, I don't know if any of you are note takers, but if you're taking notes, here's the one thing that I want you to walk out knowing it's up on the screen, that a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. Right? And if you look at your life, if you look at the people who have broke promises to you, you know that to be true. Because when you trust somebody, when you put your trust in somebody, you're not necessarily putting your trust in their words, you're putting their trust in their character. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Galatians 3, or you can pull it up in your Bible app, and um, we're gonna camp out on a a few verses in Galatians 3. And and here's kind of the context of Galatians, if you're unfamiliar with it. Paul plants this church in the New Testament. If you don't know who the apostle Paul is, Paul is the guy who essentially plants more churches than anybody else in church history. He writes two thirds of the New Testament, grew up a, in a Jewish uh, rabbi family, knew the, in, to be a Jewish rabbi, you had to have the entire Old Testament memorized. Okay, So that is tons of information. So Paul moves through the Jewish system to become a rabbi. He, he becomes this rabbi, he becomes this Pharisee who's leading the 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 jewish churches around israel in the first century and god rescues him out of this he goes really on this rampage of planting churches he is just by far just the, the missionary that goes out to all these places he plants more churches than anybody else and so he gets to galatia and in galatia you have this kind of mixture of multiple cultures you in the first century you had jewish christians and then you had gentile christians so essentially anybody who was not jewish all in one church and so paul writes to them because the problem what they had was they believed that Jesus saved them, but then all of a sudden you had people saying, "Yeah, that's great, but to stay following Jesus, to stay in that relationship with Jesus, you need something else. You need to add something to it." So they were they were moving in this direction of saying, "You need Jesus plus how you live, right?" And this happens in our culture. It's interesting how easy this is in our culture. It, I don't know if you like Facebook. I hate Facebook, and so on Facebook, there almost every single week there is this tirade that somebody that I'm friends with goes on, and it's along the lines of something like this. Maybe you can relate to this. I just started this new diet. It's called Paleo. It's amazing. Everybody who's not doing it is it, they're insane for not doing it. The very next week, somebody else say, "I just started this juice diet. It is amazing. Anybody who's not doing this juice diet, da 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 da." Then. If you're a mom and I've sat when I'm bored and I've scrolled through my wife's Facebook feed because that's what you do when you're bored as married couples. You just look at your spouse's Facebook feed. So on there, all these other moms are, if you don't school your child this way, then there's something wrong with you. If you don't dress your kids this way, then there's something wrong with you. If you haven't bought this latest book, if you're not into this latest you know, weight loss thing, if you're not doing this thing over here and it's easy for even followers of Jesus... To fall into that. Here, here's another example. How many of you are morning people? Right? Okay. So everybody, look around the room. Okay. So everyone who doesn't have their hands up does not like you. So when I first started following Jesus, here's what I would always hear from people. I'd always hear from these really mature Christians, and they would say, "You know, I got up at 4 a.m. I made my coffee. I opened my Bible and spent an hour and a half reading it, and it was amazing. And the Holy Spirit just moved." Now, I am not a morning person. Okay. Um, God has seen fit to bless us with five kids. And so, um, I've, I'm still not a morning person, but I'm just awake. And so when I started following Jesus, I would, I tried this. I would get up at like 5 a.m. I couldn't do 4 a.m. I I don't know how you do that. So I got up at 5 a.m. and I would fall asleep every single time. I'd be late for class. I'd be late for work. And, And so what would happen then is I would feel like a failure. I would feel like there's something wrong with me. Why Why can't I stay awake? Why doesn't God speak to me the way somebody else does? I mean, maybe you've sat around the table with somebody and they, and they tell you about this amazing experience that they had. They tell you how God is just moving in their life. They tell you how all these amazing things when they open their Bible. And for you, maybe you're in this dry season where nothing seems to happen, where you pray and it just seems like God is silent. You read your Bible and you think, I don't, understand any of this and nothing is jumping out at me. How do these other people seem to have all this stuff jumping out at them? And so it's real easy. So this is kind of the, this is the scene that Paul is writing this letter to. And he's writing to this church in Galatia to say, I don't want you to get lost. I don't want you to move away from this because you are saved. You are made right with God. You stay right with God because of Jesus. And so to give this example, one of the things that I love, I love history. So if you're a history channel nut, you're going to love tonight. If not, you should love tonight. It'll be great. But so what Paul does is he says, you know, when it comes to trusting in God, when it comes to following Jesus, he gives this great example of of Abraham. This is what it says in verse 15 of chapter three. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring it does not say in two offsprings Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, if you don't know Jewish history, Abraham essentially is like the George Washington of Jewish history. The entire nation of Israel starts with Abraham goes all the way back to Genesis 12 now here's the amazing thing about Abraham if you grew up in church you know who Abraham is you you know the story of Abraham you know the faith that Abraham had but here's the amazing thing about Abraham in Genesis 12 God comes to Abraham at this point according to history as best as we can tell Abraham has never encountered the God of the Bible And all of a sudden we're told in Genesis 12 that God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to pack up everything that you have. And I want you to move to the land that I will show you. Okay. So I want you to picture this for a second. You're out, you're out in the desert. I mean, it's, this is Tucson. So, I mean, we can imagine what Abraham would look like, you know, out there with all these tents and camels and things. And imagine you're out there just hanging out. You're having a hike through Sabino Canyon. And all of a sudden a voice that you have not heard before. And in fact, you haven't talked to anybody else who has heard this voice before. It says, Abraham, I mean, what do you do at that point? I want you to pack up everything you have and I want you to move to the land that I'll show you. Now, here's how I would interact with this. I'm a control guy. I like plans. I like lists. I like everything that adds up at the bottom. I like to know itineraries and it's plans in the minute. This is me. Now, my question to God would be, Where are we going? Right? God's response is I'll show you now picture this ladies. Okay. So your husband comes home. So picture what Sarah Abraham's wife is like. Imagine this conversation. Abraham comes home four or 5,000 years ago, walks into his tent. Hey honey, how was your day? It was great. I heard a voice. Now, immediately, wives would go, how long have you been hearing this voice? What does it say? Well, it said we should pack up everything that we have and we should just start walking. To where? He didn't say. He only said, I'll show you. Okay. Now, ladies, you're married. How many of you are going to go, Abraham, you've been out in the sun way too long. You're going to go, ah, now here's Abraham. So Abraham packs up everything he has and goes now to the Jewish Christians that Paul is writing to. Now they're the ones in the church of Galatia who are saying, we need Jesus plus something. We need Jesus plus how we live so that we stay made right with God. And so he tells them about Abraham and he says, no, 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 you don't need plus anything because Abraham simply trusts God because a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. And so Abraham then moves, packs everything up and goes. Now here's the amazing thing as Abraham goes, when God makes this promise to Abraham, fast forward to Genesis 15. Now at this point in Abraham's life, he's about 75, 80 years old and he's packed everything up and he's moving and he has no kids So God takes Abraham outside of his tent and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Here's my promise to you. If you look to the stars, you'll have more descendants. If you count the the sand on the seashore, you'll have more descendants. You will become a great nation. Now here's Abraham at 80, 85, no kids. And God's saying, I will make you into a great nation. Will you follow me? Will you trust me? Now, the amazing thing in Genesis 15 that, that Paul's referring to here, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, here's the amazing thing. In that, in that time period, when two kings or two rulers or two men would come together to make a covenant, they would get animals together and they would kill them. Now, to seal the covenant, this is what God said to Abraham He says, Get a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon. Now, the reason that God told him to do this was because Abraham asked him in Genesis 15, how can I trust you? Now, let's be honest for a minute. This is the crux of everything for us. If right now you are in the midst of just a dry valley and you are stuck in this place where God seems so far away and you are stuck in in just this continual cycle of, of of maybe it's temptation and maybe you're just not able to, to find freedom from something. Maybe you're stuck in this area where you're just not able to let go of something from your past. Maybe you're stuck and you're just not able to trust that God is actually good and will actually move in your life and get you out of the mess that you're in. And so when we come to trusting in God, we say, how can I trust you? We read through the promises in scripture and we say, okay, God, but how can I trust you? How do I trust you? And this kind of came home for me about a year ago. Um, Katie and I, uh, my wife, we've been married for a little over 12 years, and we have five kids. We have a nine-year-old girl, um, a seven-year-old boy, two five-year-olds, and a two-year-old. So we have four boys and a girl. So our house is always on the verge of UFC. I mean, we're just always on the verge of it. And about a year ago, we found ourselves in Ethiopia um, completing a four-year adoption, and so we brought our five-year-old home last fall. So we, we twinned uh, one of our kids. And I remember when we went to Ethiopia, I'd never been there before, and we had to take two trips. And I am not, I'm not an emotional guy. I'm not a crier. In fact, Katie will tell you, she's never seen me cry. Um, but the very last day we were in Ethiopia after spending a week with our son. So we, um, when you get there, They take you immediately after 33 hours in the air, then you land and they immediately take you to meet your child. And this is, I mean, this is off the charts, stressful. This is off the charts, just draining. You are so tired. And, And imagine meeting a child that doesn't speak any words in English. And so we go to him, it's raining out at the transition home. All the other kids are inside. They sit us on the porch at this house. And they bring out this little boy and he looks at us and, and I mean, we came prepared. I mean, we had balloons, we had bubbles, we had gum. I mean, we were, we were ready to bribe this kid. So we, we were ready and and we're trying, I mean, we're, we're getting down on our knees and we're trying to get him excited. And he, he's just standing there and he keeps looking up at one of the workers. Like, really, this really, and we kept trying we we're like, you know what? I mean, I, we have goldfish and gummy worms. Like, eventually, kid, like, you're going to love us. Like, we're, you know, we're... <laughs> and slowly, he started to warm up to us. And we spent every day with him for a week. We'd go there. We'd be there in the morning. For, we'd go out for lunch. And then we'd come back in the afternoon. And we'd play. And we'd be there with him. And we just continued to build into this relationship. Well, Friday came. Five days of being with him. And we knew that when we left for lunch, we weren't coming back. But we knew that we would be back two months later. Now, if you have spent any time with kids under five, you know that they have no idea about time whatsoever, pretty much. You can tell them that something's going to happen in 10 minutes or 10 years, and it's still really far away. And so when we began to say goodbye, he knew that something was different. He knew that we weren't coming back. He could really sense it he knew one word in English. He could say fish. And cause I mean, we literally just fed him goldfish for a week. We were, <laughs> and so he knew, he knew how to get it. I mean, it was like a seal, like fish, fish, you know I mean? It was... <laughs> and I picked him up and I carried him back to his room and, and we said, buddy, we're, we're going to say goodbye. And we named him Judah and we said, Judah, you know, we're gonna say goodbye, mom and dad. We're, we're gonna come back though. We're gonna we're gonna be back in a few weeks to bring you home. And he just looked at me, these big, big brown eyes, and just started screaming. Just started crying. And Katie started crying, and I thought, man, this is great. I'm now I'm gonna start crying, you know. And it was it was the hardest hardest moment of my life. He just held on to the back of my shirt. Just, I put him down and he just fell on the ground and, and you just want to pick him back up. And for Judah, he looked at me with the same way that we look at God and say, how do I know I can trust you? How do I know that you're going to come back? Because the reason that you're adopting me is because I'm here. And, and you look at God in your place and you say, God, how do, how do I know I can trust you? And so Abraham gets out to God and says, you know, that, that's great. Lots of descendants, you know, lots of land and, you know, I'll be a blessing. This is all great and everything, but how do I know that I can trust you? How do I know that I'm not just hearing things? How do I know that you just didn't take me out into the middle of the desert just for fun? How do I know in the same way that Judah looked at me and said, how, how, do I, how do I know that you're coming back? And maybe for you, this is why trusting God so hard because you just had people walk out of your life. You just had people you know, build something up and just leave. You've had people continually just stab you in the back. You look around your life and you just see just the emptiness of broken promises. And so God says, here's how you can trust me. I want you to get a goat. I want you to get a ram, a cow. A pigeon and a dove. I want you to kill them. I want you to cut them in half. And what Abraham did is he laid them out and he put a pathway in between because at this time, this is how two people would to make a, make a covenant, make a promise. And what they'd say is we will both walk through this. And if I do not keep my end of the promise, if I do not keep my part of the covenant, may I end up like these animals. Do you know what's amazing in Genesis 15? Do you know what happens? It says that Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And while he sleeps, God moves through the animals. Abraham never walked through them. Abraham never went through the animals to make the covenant. See, the promises that God makes to us all throughout scripture are all because God took the first step to them. Abraham never walked through it. Only God did. Only God walked through the covenant. He says, Abraham, this is how you can trust me because I'm not even banking on anything that you'll do. See, and this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Do you trust that God is that covenant maker, that, that promise keeper that just continues to be there? See, and the reason that I can say that a promise is only as good as the person who makes it is because when it comes to trusting God, we see over and over his promise in the covenant. We see over and over. So Paul goes on. This is what he says in verse 19. So why then does God give the law? Because 430 years afterwards, Moses comes along. And so what this church was saying is, yeah, we know the promises of God, right? And if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, you know the promises of God. You've walked through the gospel. You know that you're broken. You know that you can't fix yourself on your own. You know that you need what Jesus did on the cross. You need his resurrection. You need the power in your life. You know that. But then You get to this place where you say, yes, that's what saved me. That's what rescued me. But what keeps me right with God is what I do, is how I live, is how I move forward, is how I obey. And so it's so easy then to fall into because this is why we feel guilt. This is why we feel guilt. And so Paul says, no, no, no. The law came after, he goes on verse 19. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. So the law that he's referring to in the Old Testament is when God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt. So you fast forward, so you have Abraham you get through the book of Genesis. So about 600 years after Abraham, you have Moses in the book of Exodus. Now the nation of Israel spent 400 years in slavery. Now they have this promise that God gave to Abraham where he says, I will make you into a great nation. Now what's so interesting about God's promise in Genesis 15 is that he also says, but this nation that comes from you will also go into slavery for 400 years. Now, here's the amazing thing about God's promises. Because I don't know about you, but for me, when life gets really hard, I wonder where God's promises are. But what if the way that God is fulfilling the promise right now in your life is through a really hard season? What if that's true? Right? When you get to Matthew 4, do you know what happens after Jesus' baptism? It says that the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert to spend 40 days battling with Satan. Now, we don't want to hear any of this. We, we go, yeah, that's true, but could that please happen to the guy sitting next to me? <laughs> I'll take the good promise, the, the hard season promise. Could that be somebody else? But if you're there tonight, take comfort in the fact that when God made the promise to Abraham, he says, no, that your descendants will have 400 years of slavery. It's not an accident. And so when God brings the nation of Israel, when he raises up Moses in the book of Exodus and says, you will free my people and you will bring them out of Egypt and they will be my people and I will be your God. And they will fulfill the promise of Abraham. Now, here's what's interesting. When we get the law, a lot of times when people think of the law of God, we have this idea of God just in heaven, just throwing down rules. And, you know, we have the Ten Commandments and we think, you know, okay, this is God being really difficult and, you know, you know God just being really strict. Now, here's the amazing thing. In Exodus 20, when God gives them the Ten Commandments, do you know what he says beforehand? He reminds them of the promise to Abraham he says, remember, I told you that you would be a great nation. And I told you that you would go into slavery, but I am the God who rescued you. So when we think of this idea of law is how I live so that God will accept me or love me, or I could get more of God's presence or more of God's love. Because let's be honest, a lot of times we behave or we try to do good things so that God will love us more so that God will bless us more. Well, if I could, if I could just do this, then you know, maybe, maybe God will be more working on my behalf, doing what I want him to do. If I pray more, maybe he'll answer my prayers the way that I want him to. But before God gives them the law to say, this is how you live in obedience, he starts by saying, and I rescued you out of slavery. So when, when Paul says this church, they're saying, okay, yeah, there's the promises of God and there's the law of God. And we think they're different. Paul says, no, 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 no. They're the same. They're together. They're working together. You cannot have one without the other because the whole point of the law is this it is to show us how much we need the promises of God. One, one author put it like this. He says, the law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. You cannot do enough for God to love you because he already does. You cannot do anything for God to forgive you more because he already has. You cannot do anything for God to give you more of his presence because he's given you as much as you'll ever need. That approval that you're hoping that somebody else will give you, it's already been given to you in Jesus. It's already been given to you. The thing that you can't let go of, that thing from 10 years ago that you've done that you have beaten yourself up about, because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, it's covered. It's 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 forgiven. And this is why we love grace and hate grace. Because there's a part of us that says, Yeah, but I want to show you how worthwhile I was to die for. I want to show you why you should love me. But Paul says you've already been loved. You've already been forgiven. And you and I, this is the part that we play. I love this picture of grace from the life of Abraham. Because we're just like Abraham. How much did Abraham have in the promise in Genesis 15? What did he do? He slept. So he did a lot, right? He slept. That's how much we have to do with the grace that God extends to us. nothing. We, we did nothing for him to do it. I mean, God could have looked at Abraham when he says, well, how, how can I trust you? And he says, you know, you just can, right? I mean, he could have been, you know, kind of that distant parent and just ju- you know, cause I said, so, you know, cause I'm talking from heaven. This is amazing. Abraham. I mean, let's be honest. This is, he could have said any of those things, but instead he says, I'll show you how you can trust me. It's the same way that you make a promise to somebody else. I'm going to put it in your language and it's the same reason then that Jesus came because we look around and we say, okay, well, how do I know that this is real? And God says, this is how, because I'm going to show you because Jesus came and he lived, he incarnated with you. He was God with us. He wasn't just, you know, somebody who just all of a sudden appeared on the scene right? You know, as a 30-year-old Jesus with just a flowing robe, beautiful blonde hair and blue eyes like we see in the movies. No, no, no. We didn't get any of that. He was born a baby, walked the whole way through life. So God says, here's the promise that I'm making to you. It's a picture that you can understand because it's a savior that lived just like you did. They grew up had needs, had friends, had people hurt him, had temptation and yet never sinned. That's how you can trust me. And so when you get to that place and you say, well, God, I don't, know if, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you can hear me. I don't know if you understand what I'm going through. The book of Hebrews says, no, 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 you can. Because Jesus, our great high priest, went through everything that we have. He walked through it all. He walked through it all. And so the promise that God made to Abraham when says, Abraham, you can, you can trust me. And, and I love how God does that. I love how God just works that way. That he just, he shows us his promises in simple ways, in the ways that we understand. And so as Paul, Paul gets to the end, he says in verse, uh, verse 23, he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. See, and this is maybe for you, that idea of being a, a child of God, a son or daughter or seeing God as father is just hard. See, because this is the final piece of the promise that God makes. Do you trust that God is a good and gracious father that only does what is good, right, and perfect. See, when we said goodbye to Judah that Friday afternoon, and we said, Judah, we're coming back. You can trust us. And as the the nannies and the workers explained to Judah in his language that, that we were leaving, that we were coming back, I don't know for sure, but I'm wondering if the questions are, well, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? And Paul says the way that we can trust is because of all these promises of how God went to Abraham and says, this is why you can trust me. How God went to Moses and said, this is why you can trust me because I rescued you. And Jesus comes and he says, look, remember how Jesus came and we saw in Jesus how we can trust God and how we can be a son or daughter of God. And so this step then of trusting God is then saying, God, I trust that you are a good And gracious father who only does what is good, right, and perfect. And what part did we do? We showed up. We did what Abraham did. We took the steps of response, but we didn't take the first step. Abraham didn't take the first step. Moses didn't take the first step. None of the people in scripture that God uses greatly ever took the first step. God always went first. God always went first. And so it comes back to the trust thing. And here's the interesting thing. When we think about the law and we think about how, you know, oftentimes we try to prove ourselves or we try to live a certain way to show that we're worthwhile or to show that we're good or show that, you know, we we are somebody. If you think about your life for a second, think about, maybe think about a mess that you're in right now or maybe not you, you can think of somebody else. I know some, a lot of times we like to think of other people and we can think about how this sermon can apply to them and stuff. So you can do that for a minute. But so think about a mess someone else is in, or even you. No matter what happened, you're part of the reason you're in that mess. Now, I, I know if we had coffee together, it would be 100% the other person's fault. I, I, I know that. But there's always at least 2% of something you did. Right? So there, there's always a piece that you played in the mess that you're in. And yet for us, here's our remedy for the problems that we're in. I'll work it out. Right? This is our guy. This is our man, manly response. I'll fix it. I'll handle it. Now think for a minute, we're in the mess we're in because of us. I'll handle it. I'll handle it. See, and God comes to Abraham and comes to Moses and comes to Paul and says, "Here's here's the reality. You can't fix yourself. You can't free yourself. You can't get enough accountability partners to free yourself. You can't put enough boundaries in your life to free yourself. You can't put enough things in place to make sure you don't fall back into old patterns. You can't do enough to make sure that you don't become like your father or become like your mother. You don't. There's not enough that you can do to fix it. Your marriage, there's not enough that you can do on your own to fix it without the promises of God coming in. So Here's a couple easy next steps for you. This might be difficult for you. They're, they're up here on the screen. The first one is this: that I will stop holding myself responsible for what God has freed me from. See, when we trust the promises of God, we trust that everything that we have ever done, everything that we will ever do, will be forgiven. And a lot of times people will say, oh, well, if we just give all this grace to people, you know, then they're just going to do whatever they want. Now, here's the reality. When you experience the grace of God, when you experience that you have done absolutely nothing for him to rescue you, you've done absolutely nothing for him to love you, to extend his grace to you, to take the first step in adopting you into his family. When you understand you have done nothing for that to happen, why would you ever want to go back to the way it was? Why would you ever want to go back and live in that? And the next one is this, that I will trust the promises, trusting the promises of God would look like blank for me. What would it look like for you? What would trusting that, that God is a good and gracious father? Maybe for you, father is just a hard word for you to wrap your hands around and you think, you know, I don't know. What would it look like? What would it mean? What freedom could come from in your life if you actually believed that God was a good father to you? What would that look like? The promises in in Romans eight, where God says that I am working all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my plan. Now, what is that good that isn't always easy? that isn't always flowery, and it isn't always just a you know nice, easy coast down. No, sometimes that good might be him leading you into the desert. But what would it look like for you to trust that God is walking right alongside with you and saying, you're exactly where you need to be right now. See, that place that I found myself in 10 years ago, it really had very little to do with the other pastor. Um, it took me probably seven years before I actually forgave him and I could actually respond to to him. And I, I still remember the very, f- one of the very first Sundays after we left that church, uh, we moved in with some family members and, um, and I was just in this utterly low place of depression. I just, I didn't, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to go look for a job. I certainly didn't want to go to church and put on a smiley face and be around other Christians and, have them say, how are you doing? And be like, oh, I'm great. You know, unemployed and awesome. And I, I just don't want to do that. And so I remember one of our very first Sundays and I'm laying in bed Sunday morning, my wife, Katie gets up and she says, so are we going to church today? And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to go to church. I gave her this whole litany of reasons why I didn't want to go. She goes, well, that's awesome. Cause we're going So get out of bed. And I remember sitting there and they got to the end of the service and they did the church that we were went to that day did communion every week, just like you guys do. And I remember it came around and I always remembered, you know, this verse that says that, you know, if you have something to get against somebody before you take communion, you need to go to them. And so I thought, well, you know, I I can't take communion because I for sure have something against somebody. There's somebody I wish dead. And, um, and so I, I for sure can't, I, well, I don't know if it, it was that bad. So, um, so I said, I can't take communion. I told Katie. And so we just sat there together. And afterwards I, I talked to the pastor and I met him and I just said, Hey, you know, I, I didn't take communion today. And, and here's why I said, I'm really angry. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time believing that God is good in this. And I'm having a hard time believing that God is okay, um, that this happened and that God's not throwing thunderbolts at him and not smiting him. And I'm not sure why, you know, cause that's what a good God would do in my opinion at this point. And I said, so I didn't take communion because of that. And he said, I I get it. He said, here's something for you to think about. He said, what if, um," he said, because when you take communion, he said, you remind yourself of the hope that you have as a follower of Jesus. He said, you also remind yourself that the reason you're taking communion is because Jesus died for you. And the reason he died for you is because you're broken and your sin put him on the cross. And so he said, you're trusting in the fact that that happened, but you're also trusting in the promises of God that that will one day right all the wrongs in your life. And he said, so what if in taking communion, as you confess that sin and as you continue to work through it, what if in taking communion, you are beginning to understand what it actually means for God to forgive you so that you can then forgive other people? And I remember the very next week then when we went back to the church and it was time for communion and, and one of the things that Katie and I had decided, and this may be helpful for you when you just think about people who have broken promises to you or people you have a hard time trusting everybody who's ever hurt us along the way we've begun to pray for and and not that they would get what they gave to us, but we began to pray that God would bless them and that God would guide them, and that God would take them to even greater health and success than we experienced. And I'll be honest, that was hard. There were moments that I did not want to pray that God would move through that other pastor while he preached. There were times when I would see things on Twitter, and I think, look at all the people who showed up at his church plant now, and it was hard. But what I began to see was that it is possible to trust in the promises of God. It is possible because when you do, you're not trusting in the words of God, you're trusting in the character of God. You're trusting in the fact that God saw the broken mess that you are and says, while you sit on the side over here and in fact fall asleep and do nothing, I'll walk through the animals and make the covenant." I'll take the first step. I'll keep the promise. And all along the way, I'll show you pictures of what it looks like to trust me. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you are a good God, are a good father. I thank you that you extend grace to us. I thank you that in the midst of our brokenness, before we even realized that we were broken, before we even realized that we couldn't fix ourselves, you took the first step. God, I thank you for that truth in Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us before we even knew of our brokenness. And so God, I pray tonight for those who maybe walked in wondering if you're real. and saying, I, I don't know if I can trust in God. I don't know if I can trust that God's there, that God can move me out of the just the mess that I'm in. I pray that your spirit would just begin to show them, to, even tonight, how true and real you are. And I pray that as we take communion now, as we remind ourselves of the promise that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be made right, that we can be set free and the hope that we have that you are making things right and that you will redeem all things one day. God, I thank you for that just great picture, that great reminder that we have as your children in your name, amen.